Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we have our first big moves in the 2020 presidential race. Attorney Michael Avenatti and former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick say they won't run for president. We're going to talk through what that tells us about the way the field might shape up and just how big it's going to be. Plus, an electoral fraud scandal is brewing in North Carolina. Did a Republican congressional candidate's campaign round up a bunch of absentee ballots and use them to try and swing the race. We're going to talk with Elena Schneider about exactly what happened there, bring in some fun historical context, at least I think it's fun, and uh, talk about what might happen next as the 2018 midterms refuse to get put in the rearview mirror. As always, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. Today, that's December the 6th, so it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. We've got two of our national political reporters on the line, David Siders, joining from California. David, good to hear from you. Good to be here. And Natasha Karecki on the phone from Chicago. Hi, Natasha. Hey, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. And, of course, in the studio, we have senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Hey, Charlie. Hi, Scott. All right, time for our first data point. Two, or maybe it should be negative two. Two potential Democratic candidates for the presidency said this week, no, not going to do it. Michael Avenatti, who was a regular on the cable news circuit, thanks to representing porn star Stormy Daniels in her lawsuit against President Donald Trump, released a statement saying he was not going to go through with a 2020 presidential bid. And maybe uh, on the more serious side of the ledger uh, uh, in terms of uh, political accomplishment, Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, uh, who was a big favorite of some of President Barack Obama's former advisors, uh, also released a statement saying he was, wasn't was going to do it. That was about 48 hours after Politico uh, broke the news, of course. Uh, so hard to imagine two people more different, but here we are. Natasha, I'll start with you. Um, you've been uh, heavily involved in tracking both of these potential now non-candidates. But take us inside the thinking of, of both these people, Avenatti and Patrick, as they decided not to pull the trigger on a 2020 presidential run. Right. Well, you nailed it when you said you couldn't imagine two people who are more different and their reasoning for, for, for not running could have been more different. And I, I think with, with Michael Avenatti, um, what we saw was someone who, and this was in our headline, crashed and burned. I mean, he, he was someone who um, had positioned himself as the sort of the, the de- democratic form of, of Donald Trump. And um, I think, think what really changed his fortunes was a domestic violence uh, arrest in, in November. And, uh, you know, it's really hard to run for president and talk about fighting for women uh, when you have that uh, still hanging over you. Some and, of the old rules um, still apply, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, um, you know, here's somebody who when you did see him go out and talk and, and people did take him seriously, he did travel extensively 
um, across the country and talk to all these gr- Democratic groups, um, helped fundraise for candidates and so forth. Uh, and crowds did like him, but he talked about his fight for women. And, you know, here he's fighting this domestic violence charge. And, and that is just the latest. I mean, he, there were so many issues with Avenatti, um, you know, legal issues. Uh, he's going through a nasty divorce. It's very contentious. Um, there's investments that um, are under question. All kinds of people are suing him. Um, but all of that stuff you could have kind of put to the side because it wasn't really penetrating. But something like, you know, uh, being arrested for, you know, some of the allegations that were coming out um, and, and then his explanations just kept evolving. Um, so that, you know, that just was sort of the tipping point for him. Yeah. And then, and then on the other side, you've got Deval Patrick, who's a two term governor, who's got this and had been talking for months about how he he kind of had he had he was forming a rationale. Right. For what a Deval Patrick presidential campaign would look like. But ultimately, it, it sounds like he decided that that he he didn't really have it in himself to put him or or his family through the the gauntlet. Right, that's right. And and you know he 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 later came out with a statement saying um, that you know he just didn't that the process was a cruel one, um, and it and it wasn't something that he wanted to you know. And he specifically said it wasn't just him. You know, it was it was the other people in his family that he didn't want to put through that. Um, but he was taken so much more seriously, um, obviously, as a candidate because of his ties to Obama. And, and Team Obama, what, what's left of it, was trying to get him to run. Um, so he, uh, you know, he, he had that behind him. Um, you know, he had this great narrative, this rags to riches story. You know, he's a two term governor. Um, all of that um, really, you know, I, I think a lot of people were kind of surprised. Um, they thought he was sort of a threat in the field. Um, so it was a, yeah, it was an interesting takeaway in, in, in just one week of, uh, you know, two different, very different figures. Absolutely. Of calling it quits. David, I wonder if you could kind of put put this all in in context for us of of the the broader. You had a really good piece uh, this week about about the so called invisible primary and and you know what's the the behind the scenes maneuverings that that affect uh, a presidential campaign and and say a lot about who's going to come out of it uh, before the voting actually starts. Um, but you you also wrote that it's it's happening more visibly. It's almost like announcing that you're running is only a step. <laughs> In, in the process of running, if that makes any sense. And, and a lot of people are, are kind of along in that process. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, the, it used to be that the, the pre-2020 period, a candidate could, you know, reporters would describe it almost quaintly to readers, saying, you know, in the year before a presidential election, you have candidates out talking to donors and, and kind of kicking the tires. You know, Jimmy Carter could hang out in Iowa unmolested. Um, and... And I think now that's that's just not the case, and it's not just difference in media attention. Although it's certainly interesting that TMZ is all over people like Avenatti and, and Beto O'Rourke, uh, but it's also a, a couple of real structural changes I think within the party that that will change this year's primary. And the first is this rise of small dollar fundraising, which you really saw Bernie Sanders take advantage of in 2016. But but now it's not just him; it's it's Beto O'Rourke, it's Elizabeth Warren, it's Kamala Harris, it's a lot of people who have big email lists. And then also, you have a stripping of Democratic National Committee superdelegates of most of their power in the nominating process. So while all the same things are happening, you still have these candidates having backroom conversations with donors, um, meeting with party chairs and party leaders. All of those things are still happening. 
the, the balance of power has shifted, I think, slightly to these more populist kind of appeals because you can have a backroom meeting with a, a mega donor right now, but many of those donors are undecided. And if you compare the, the weight of that kind of meeting to, say, the weight of Beto O'Rourke pressing send on a, you know, a, a fundraising email to his list, uh, I think the balance has shifted to this more visible kind of primary. Mm, that's a great point. So, Charlie, what do you, you know, the, the, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the first, like, real concrete signals about what people are going to do in this Democratic presidential primary, and they were no's, right? Does this change the the conventional wisdom, you think, that there are going to be 20, 20-plus 20 candidates out there, or do you think that we might actually end up with a smaller field than people have been talking about for a long time? I don't think we got any clarity on the uh, the shape or the definition mm-hmm. of the field from from the uh, recent decisions, but I do think we got a glimpse at what the primary is going to look like over the next six to twelve weeks. Meaning, uh, we knew it was going to be big, but now we're beginning to understand the level of volatility we're going to have. Uh, think about it this way: there was that was a news cycle, one single news cycle in which two candidates dropped out. And a front runner felt that he had to establish his uh, his position and and, ca- and make his mark on the primary. That was Joe Biden, who declared himself the most qualified person in the country to be president. So in uh, any one of those in a normal news cycle cycle in a presidential race is a pretty big deal. We had three of them there and they barely made a dent. And what I thought was really interesting is that so you have Deval Patrick, who was an accomplished governor. He leaves the race, but it doesn't even dent the, the number of governors in the race. We still have maybe a half dozen. Uh, current or former governors who are still in it. He is an African-American who leaves the race. That's okay. We still have two or three other highly accomplished African-Americans running in the presidential race. So the field is just so big uh, that we are going to be dealing with this uh, amorphous uh, field of candidates that's unlike anything we've had to uh, contend with before. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's a really, that's a really interesting point. That, I mean, there's never been this kind of uh, uh, breadth of identity and experience in, uh, and I mean, he he would have been one of the the, the more experienced ones, I, I guess. But there's there's an unusual range of um, of characters at play here. Um, the, Natasha, what? So you know, now now that uh, these guys are kind of kind of drop off the the big board, so, so to speak, what? I mean, what what what's next? Like, what 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 are you looking out for? As are there going to be more announcements like this, or or more go or no go type things, in in the next weeks, or is it that people who aren't going to run kind of want to get out there early and just halt the speculation at this point? Well, you know, I, I, I halt. Yeah, I think we're going to see more people dropping out, and and it could be halting speculation, but I think it's more like. There's some Apple that's going to drop. They want to get ahead of it and that so they can con- control the narrative um, as much as they can. Um, we're, what, what else we're looking for? We're looking for um, any kind of filings for, you know, the next round is going to be exploratory committees. Um, we're looking for who has money in the bank, how much money they have, who's, who's starting to sort of like, you know, digital fundraising, um, digital ads, that type of thing. Um, but we're just, we're, I think we're all sort of political reporters are bracing themselves for January. It's going to be insane. And, um, I think that's where it's going to come fast and furious. Charlie, what's, you know, 
What do you think is, uh, is awaits us in, in January, February and beyond? Well, I, I mean, I think, as Natasha said, we're going to have a glut of announcements. Uh, it's, it's just going to be one mad news cycle after another because we're going to have people getting in, uh, which is going to be a huge splash. And, you know, shops like ours are going to be scrambling to, you know, write about the implications of Kamala getting in or uh, Bernie or something like that. We're, we're invariably going to have a big name is not going to get in, uh, someone who we all were counting on, somebody like maybe Joe Biden. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying one way or another that we have any uh, clarity into his decision making. But if somebody like him drops out again, that has an enormous ripple across the landscape. So, you know, what I'm expecting is just sort of this mad scramble uh, until the field is set. And that may not be until midway through the year, because there are going to be a couple candidates uh, and I have a couple people in mind who are probably sitting out way, thinking that the best possible way for them, their lane is going to be to sit and watch an enormous field develop, uh, splinter bicker amongst themselves, and they will come in as on sort of a, a white horse as a white knight candidate deep into the process. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, just 23 more months to go, I guess, until we figure it all out. So David Siders from California, thank you so much for being here to uh, talk us through it. We will talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. And Natasha Karecki on the line from Chicago, same to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Charlie, I know you're going to be sticking around for our next segment. Okay, on to our next data point, which is 905. That is the vote margin in the still undecided House race in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. The district stretches from the Charlotte suburbs all the way east toward Fayetteville, and it is the site of what might be the biggest election fraud in recent memory. That's why the race is still uncalled. That's why multiple authorities are investigating it, and it could end up stretching way into next year without someone being seated from that district. Elena Schneider, who covers campaigns for Politico and, to boot, is a North Carolina native, is here to help explain what's going on. Hi, Elena. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Start with the basics. Who ran in this race? So this was one of the most competitive races in the country, and it drew nearly $8 million in outside spending, in part because Democrats felt like they truly had a shot here. So their candidate was Dan McCready, Marine Corps veteran, uh, small businessman, young, clean-cut, really nice-looking guy, um, who ran against Mark Harris, who um, made a big splash by taking out uh, Robert Pittenger, uh, the Republican congressman in the May primary by in a real squeaker. And uh, so this was really one that everyone was keeping an eye on, in part because it, it included a lot of the Charlotte suburbs, which is exactly the place where we expected and saw in a lot of 2018, where Democrats were able to really make a, a, a new foothold. Okay, so you've you've set the scene. We know the players now. Why is this race still undecided? And the state board of elections is investigating, and some district attorneys and possibly the U.S. attorney looking into absentee ballots in some of the counties in this district. What's going on there? So this race, um, what you know. Unsurprisingly, it came down to a very slim margin, as you said, 905 votes. Uh, on election night or, or a few hours afterwards, Dan McCready, the Democrat, conceded, um, and, and it looked like Mark Harris was heading to Congress. But the State Board of Election, as you noted, refused to certify in late November this race, in part noting concerns around irregularities and, and in particular citing absentee ballot collection in two particular rural counties, Bladen County and Robeson County in North Carolina. And... 
It's been a bit opaque from the State Board of Election in terms of what actually was going on. There's been some really remarkable local reporting about um, what actually has happened, or finally in the last couple of days, getting some real information about what happened here. But it started by um, the North Carolina Democratic Party uh, filed half a dozen affidavits of, of voters in these two particular counties, in these two rural counties, who said that when they uh, they had somebody come to their door, ask for their absentee ballot, and they would fill it out or partially fill it out and return it to this person who promised to turn it in for them. And that's real, really problematic because it's actually illegal in North Carolina. Um, you can you can have someone who's a close family member or a legal guardian turn in your absentee ballot, but not anyone else. And you're not allowed to have anyone else fill out your ballot exactly. for you, no matter who they are. Exactly. Or, well, actually, I probably shouldn't go that far. I'm sure there are some folks who, who need help who, who are allowed to get it. But the, that that's like a big no-no, even in states where this so-called ballot harvesting, other people turning them in, is legal. Right. So so that's sort of where we started to get a sense of what was actually happening here. And then we had all kinds of people looking, diving into a bit of these numbers and looking at these two, um, excuse me, these two counties and what sort of the irregularities they might have spotted here. And at the center of all of this is this um, pretty unsavory character, uh, Leslie McRae Dallas, who um, is, is known in, in North Carolina as somebody who has worked on campaigns in the past. Who's working as a contractor for Harris's exactly, campaign. And uh, has a long rap sheet and is somebody who um, was hired by the Harris campaign to do what they, you know, called him and they called him an independent contractor who worked on grassroots efforts, but very much was known as somebody who went out and collected and got absentee ballots. And he also is somebody who is not new to politics here. So back in 2016, Dallas actually worked for, still in this district, in the Republican primary back in 2016, worked for a guy, Todd Johnson, who was crushed both by Mark Harris and Robert Pittenger. But um, while but getting crushed. While getting crushed in Bladen County in those absentee tea ballots, he was able to get 220 versus Harris, who got four, and Pittenger, who got one. <laughs> okay. So, Interesting. All right. We're already looking a little suspicious. Fast forward then to 2018. Dallas was then hired um, by uh, uh, Harris's Republican consultant, and Harris won blatant absentee 437 to 17. Hmm. And then again, you fast forward again to what we're looking at now, which is where um, in the 2018 general, where McCready won absentee ballots in every single, in all seven counties except for Bladen. Mm -hmm. And again, this is another place where in Bladen, 61% voted for Mark Harris, even though Republicans only make up 20% of the county. So again, it's, it's sort of the numbers look fishy. And as one Republican operative put it, there is a, an unbelievable amount of smoke. And now the key question is, what did Mark Harris know it and when did he know it? Mm -hmm. And I want to bring in our legal advisor, Charles Matesian Esquire, <laughs> to, to take I mean, Charlie, the, so there's all sorts of obviously, right, there's a board of elections investigation going on. There's there potentially criminal investigations going on. There's also, I mean, the, the, the House of Representatives gets to decide who its members are going to be, right? I mean, they they decide who to seat and who not. And maybe it's a moot point at, at this point because the Board of Elections hasn't certified the election yet. But but we had uh, Steny Hoyer, the incoming House Majority Leader, saying the other day, it's like, mm, I'm not sure that we're going to want to seat Mark Harris until we get some answers to these questions. It's kind of, we talk about impeachment as a political process, not a legal process. But, you know, there there's something kind of similar about elections where the House has some has some jurisdiction over who joins it. Right. And the House is the ultimate decider here. And what's fascinating is to sort of uh, to see how both sides in Congress are, are interpreting this, because there are all sorts of strange forces swirling around. Obviously, Hoyer gets it out there and sort of is the first to really mention it prominently that, well, maybe we don't want to seat this guy. But I've been uh, trying to watch how Republicans have responded. And, and it's and, you know, they, they've walked tread very gingerly around this subject, because on the one hand, 
Harris knocked off one of their own. He knocked off a he knocked off Pittenger in the primary. So you know they're not really embracing him entirely. Uh, on the other hand, you know they know something's rotten in Denmark. Like clearly something's off here, and so you know they don't want to get out ahead of this and welcome this person who may have been involved in some sort of electoral malfeasance. Yet another force swirling in the background is the idea that. Well, I don't know. We kind of think Democrats win elections by fraud anyway. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's maybe they're lying and trying to steal a seat from us. So you've got all these factors swirling about in the background. Well, and and Elena, you know the history in North Carolina as well as anyone. The Republican Party there has really made like voter fraud a major rallying cry in in recent years and they're they're kind of being put on on the defensive here, just as the they're trying to pass some stuff in the legislature right now right. about this, it's like a it's a very uh, turned on the heels situation. Absolutely. So Democrats, or excuse me, Republicans uh, pushed through and really supported uh, this referendum to the Constitution, which would have required people to show up with their vote with uh, ID at the polls, and it was something that was approved by fifty five percent in November. And now they're currently writing the language to try and push that through before they lose their veto proof majority in January. And I think that in in just the last day, they've added now language that somewhat at least starts to attempt to address this absentee ballot question. In part because they were feeling intense pressure that they were looking a little hypocritical here. Um, and at least that's certainly what Democrats are trying to say and trying to point out here. Charlie, now we, we talked about the, the role that the House might play in in what's going to – and again, we don't know if this is going to get certified. It's possible that the Board of Elections could – they have the power to call a new election if exactly. they decide that – uh, a new special election if they decide that the the previous one was tainted um, irreparably. But Charlie, th- there's this amazing historical precedent of the House kind of getting involved in in a really close election where there were there were questions and accusations about uh, the the vote count on both sides. And I'm talking about Indiana's eighth district. And take us back, if you could, to 1985. Yeah, and set the scene. I mean, it's it's one of the you know most memorable, craziest moments in House history. You know, any House. Any textbook about you know the the history of the institution would would include this discussion about the the bloody eighth in after the nineteen eighty four election uh, and I think for for many people who are house junkies the first thing you thought of when you when you could when you saw how rotten this election was and how badly it smelled was you began to think about. Could this be the next bloody eighth? And, and the bloody eighth refers to this district in, in southern Indiana that became famous because it was so fiercely contested for so many years. Like be- between the mid '60s and the uh, early '80s, I think six incumbents were ousted from there. And then even after that, it was always so closely contested. You know, it would flip constantly back and forth and back and forth. And so in 1984, there was a really close election. So the House was completely different at that world in Washington at, at that time. And uh, Washington was completely different because at that time you couldn't even imagine what a Republican House might look like because Democrats had held the House. It was their crown jewel for nearly 40 years. And uh, so it was a powerful majority. It was an arrogant majority. And, you know, without diving too deep into the process, which would be a, a little boring for, I think, uh, a lot of our listeners and also for me to, to say, but without going into all that, um, it's this was a really close race. Democrats uh, used their muscular majority to, to ram through their candidate, despite the fact that there was persuasive evidence, maybe, that the Republican who won that seat could have been seated in the House, and Republicans freaked out. The Republicans are doing their best to see that a terrible injustice is righted. And if the majority doesn't like our procedures, they should understand. You can always vote us down. 
and invariably you do. In, in the House of Representatives, it was, a, uh, I think, a pivotal moment for Republicans. In fact, I would say, I would argue that it was the wellspring of all the current dysfunction in the House. Now, you can trace a direct line back to that seat because even Gingrich says today and has said for years, and many Republicans of that era have said that they were so angry and so radicalized by Democrats seating their candidate in this close race in the bloody eighth that they never got over it. And it changed the House forever. Uh, and and uh, the reason I bring that up is we've got this historic class of freshmen coming in, Democratic freshmen, and it would be uh, really remarkable if this was their uh, formative experience. They come in to transform Washington, and can you imagine if there is a contested race that goes to the House uh, and um, it occupies and sucks up all the oxygen in the House in, in, in their you know, first year? And that is the risk when you have a contested race like this. Now, and Elena, we mentioned this briefly before, the the what happened with that the the republican controlled board of elections in indiana said one thing house democrats said another thing in terms of the result, it's possible that we may just end up having a new election right. in North Carolina. So the State Board of Election is made up of four Republicans, four Democrats, and one unaffiliated. And they're uh, appointed by the governor, um, and they hold on to these seats for a number of years. And they are going to be in a position to vote whether or not to call for an entirely new election and rehash everything that we just went through over the last 18 months. Uh, obviously not a new primary, but a new general election, uh, which will again pit um, McCready versus Harris and then also a libertarian candidate again in sometime in, in early 2019. Mm-hmm. So we'll just have to keep an eye and see whether that, whether that happens or not. The Board of Elections voted 7-2 to two to investigate further right. uh, these allegations. And so uh, that, that's going to happen by December 21st is the first hearing. And then who knows how long it'll it'll take from there. It's very possible, maybe even likely at this point, that the, the district won't have anyone seated from it when the new Congress starts. I think that's likely. All right. Well, we will be keeping an eye on it, potentially uh, uh, have you back to to tell us more about it in the future. Elena, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. And Charlie, thank you as well. Chicago, thank you. All right. Our producer this week is Micaela Rodriguez with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like the Nerdcast and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you all so much for listening to us this week. We'll be back with you next week. What did you say? <laughs> I said Fayetteville. Fayetteville? Fayetteville. All right. Thank God I'm here. Oh, man. Yeah, really? Fayetteville? <laughs> Fayetteville.